I'll invite you to flip your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. As you're flipping there, I want to put an image in your mind before we read this passage. Have you ever been driving on an interstate or four-lane highway where you have two lanes going your direction and you weren't paying attention and suddenly you realize that your lane ends or they're doing road work and they have construction that has blocked off your lane and suddenly you've got to get over or die? Has that happened to you? Well, that's sort of what this sermon is about. The Bible is going to present two lanes. They both seem to be going the same direction. One of these lanes has a disastrous end. The other one has a wonderful end. And I want you to consider for about 30 minutes as I expound on this scripture, which lane you might be in. And this isn't, this isn't religious talk. I know sometimes Sunday mornings can seem disconnected from reality. This is reality. I'm submitting to you that this is reality. This is for you and for me to evaluate. So for 30 minutes, I'll ask for your attention for no texting. It's a no texting zone for 30 minutes because I believe this is earth-shatteringly important, especially for us who live in this culture around here, a churchy culture. This scripture is for us this morning. So if you'll uh, pray with me, And then we'll read the scripture together and see what God has to say for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, won't you please speak clearly to us through your word. Each person has come here for different reasons, different motivations, but somewhere in all of our hearts, we are here to hear from you, to worship you. And we need you to miraculously open our ears and our hearts for it. Uh, So I pray for your help, that you would help me to speak clearly, to think clearly, to make this passage of Scripture plain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will, if you're able, uh, we stand when we read God's Word. It's just a simple expression of honor, because we believe this book is different from all other books. This book, we believe, is God's Word. And we'll be reading from Romans chapter 4. We'll read the first eight verses. And then at the end, we'll come back and hit the uh, verses 9 through 12. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Real quick, Abraham, what you need to know about Abraham to understand this passage is that he was, to the Jewish Christians, considered the great father of their faith. He was the great father and the great um, model, model for how to be a good person, how to be a godly, righteous person. So Abraham was the example. He'd be like George Washington for us, sort of the founding father. For if Abraham was justified by works, it's not to keep interrupting myself, but remember, justification is... It's a big theological word, but all it means is being made right by God, being made acceptable to God. That's what justification means. So, for if Abraham was justified, made right, made innocent by works, things that he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him 
as righteousness. That's a, an accounting term. Counted to him as righteousness. It's as though Abraham just believed what God said. He deposited belief and God credited righteousness to him. It's different from if Abraham was righteous and gave God his righteousness and God said, okay, yes, you are righteous. Abraham gave him trust. And God in turn said, because you've trusted me, I see you as righteous. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David, what you need to know about David is that he was the great king. So he's used Abraham as an example, the great father, the great model of how to be a good person. And now he's using David as an example, the great king that the Jews really respected. David wrote this, starting in verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And we're so grateful that we have God's word to study this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. We're going to focus primarily on verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 lay out these two lanes I described earlier. So you're all here. You're here in church this morning. I'm going to assume that because you're here in church, you have some interest in being okay with God. You have some interest in being found right with God. Some interest in being a good person, some interest in, in having your kids in a, in a place where they'll become good people. There's two lanes that move that direction in our culture, and they're laid out in these two verses. There's the lane of the worker, the path of the worker, and then there's the path of the believer, or the lane of the believer. These are the two lanes I hope to differentiate clearly this morning. Um, and there is an outline in your bulletin of what I'm talking about. In this passage, I think we can track down three distinctions between the two lanes, which I hope will help us decide, are we in the lane that's going to end? Do we need to switch lanes? Or are we in the lane we need to be in? So, workers, this is the first distinction. Workers... Workers earn wages, whereas believers receive blessing. Okay, you still following with me? Workers earn wages. Believers receive blessing. It's a big difference, although they look the same. How many of you in here work? Yeah, everybody has to work. I have worked an outrageous number of jobs in my life to only be 28. I won't go through them all now, but I've worked in sales. I've worked in warehouse work. I've worked in public relations. I've graded EOC tests for second graders. I've delivered Chick-fil-A biscuits in my car to car dealerships. I've done lots of different kinds of jobs. And I know there's a lot of different kinds of work represented in this room. But it all comes down to the same basic agreement. Workers agree to perform some task so that their employers agree to compensate them. Workers perform some agreed-upon task so that their employers, their boss, pays them some agreed-upon compensation. 
many in churches today have that same worker mentality with God. They see the Bible as just a really thick job description, God as the cosmic boss, heaven as the cosmic compensation for our work. So that if we do what's told for us to do in here, God is obligated to compensate us with heaven. And so we work, and so we attend church every Sunday, and so we have our quiet time every morning. And so we do all variety of stuff as our job as a Christian. Just like a brick mason lays brick, his boss pays him for it. Both win. Brick mason gets his check, the boss gets his job done, his structure built, his bricks laid. Both are obligated to each other. Now I want you to be evaluating, is this kind of how you've been approaching God? Because it's different. Believers, on the other hand, believe and therefore trust God. And they receive blessing. Look at what it says about Abraham before we get to these verses highlighted there. If Abraham was justified by works, by working, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I fear that I'm not being clear, and I desperately want to, because this is so, so, so important. I've told you guys how I took an evangelism training class when I was a youth called Evangelism Explosion. What's the name of it? EE. I still have a little pen because I completed the course. Evangelism, for, for those of you who don't know, that word means that's the, uh, the practice of going out and telling people about Jesus and saying, become a Christian, telling people the good news about Jesus. I took this course. One of the two questions was this. If you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? By the way, there's no easy way to just slam that question on somebody the way evangelism explosion teaches you to. But think about it for yourself. If you were to die today, which could happen. This church knows that we're not promised another day. We've had a lot of death, unexpected death in our church. If it were to happen to you, and in this scenario, you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now, I'll tell you, most people that I have talked to basically about this question will immediately go to worker-type answers. Well, if God asked me, I'd say, I mean, I've been in church my whole life. I've raised my kids in church. I have 35 Bibles. I've read some. I don't cuss. I don't watch R-rated movies. I don't drink. I've never cheated on my wife or my husband. I've never beat my children. I've done a lot of good stuff, and I have not failed to do a lot of bad stuff. That's why you should accept me. That's the wrong answer. It's just the wrong answer, and I've heard it a lot. And I have I've been here just a couple of years, and I've been beside a lot of people in a lot of hospitals. 
and I'll try to get around to this question. And I'll ask believer-type questions. Well, was there ever a time that you just, you thought clearly about Jesus and his claims to be the way to God and decided what you believed? Yes, he is. Or no, he isn't. And for many people, that question doesn't even compute. So many times I've asked a question like that, and it's like they, there's a puzzled look, and then they just get back onto the worker lane. Like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Believe, but I do all this stuff. It's so important that we figure this out because the worker lane, we're going to find out in a few minutes, is the lane that's going to end abruptly in disaster. I don't know if you all believe me on this, but I, I'm claiming this from God's word. The worker lane is going to end in disaster because workers earn wages, believers receive blessing. Now, the second distinction is workers operate according to duty and obligation. Believers operate according to delight and desire. One lane is all about duty and obligation, things you've got to do. The other lane is all about desire and passion and delight, things that you want. How many of you are going to go to work tomorrow? Some of you may be going to work today. Now, how many of you, if you knew that you weren't going to get compensated anything, you'd still go to work? (laughs) Julia actually is in that position, and she still goes to work. But most people would not, because for most people, their job is purely obligation and duty. Donnie, you don't want to be laying on the side of the road hooking a truck up. If you weren't getting paid, you wouldn't be out there doing that, would you? No. But you do because you're obligated to. Just like the, the other side of the coin is that your employer is obligated to pay you for doing that work. This creeps into our spiritual life. If we're honest, many of us are here out of duty this morning, out of obligation. And if the compensation that we're expecting from God were stripped away, if we didn't think we were going to benefit at all from this whole thing, we wouldn't be here. Some of us would still be in bed. Some of us would be watching Maury Povich on TV. I don't know what goes on on Sundays. I think what gets me about this distinction is more the factor about what this says about God. It doesn't just say that I feel obligated to God to do certain stuff. The unspoken side of this coin is that it also says, because I've done certain stuff, you're obligated to me. I've done the job description. You owe me heaven. And God doesn't owe us anything. But God delights. He loves to give us heaven. He loves to give us salvation. He loves to to forgive our sins and make us right. But we don't make him obligated by the good stuff we do. I have an illustration for this that may only make sense to me. I've shared this with you a hundred times. I only have like four illustrations. I rotate. When I graduated high school, as many of folks in our church have just recently done, 
I graduated high school. I was in my room, and Dad came in and sat down beside me for one of these tender father-son moments and said, Son, you've graduated high school. The way I see it, it's no longer my responsibility to finance your dreams. That was the inspirational speech that he delivered to me. But, as young men do, a year, two years into college and work, I got myself in trouble, overextended my spending, underextended my work ethic, I guess. But I knew that my father saw no obligation to bail me out. And I didn't even ask him. Instead, I made arrangements to move from my one dorm, that, uh, my, my one apartment that cost so much, to these horrible, I don't know if it was a dorm or apartments, it was this horrible place where I was going to be in one tiny room with four disgusting guys. It was the only room open, but it was going to save me enough money that I'd be okay. I made all the adjustments. Mom and Dad knew what I was up to because we kept in contact. I made all the, I did all the arrangements. Moved my stuff in there. I had my TV on the sagging bed. I was worried it was just going to topple off. Had all my stuff on my corner. And then Dad called and said, I was coming home that weekend. Dad called and said he had something to talk to me about when we got home. He wanted to help me out. And so I got home, and he asked what I needed to be able to stay in the decent apartment I was living in and to be okay. And I told him, and he just gave it to me. Now, he had made it perfectly clear that he, he was not under any obligation to help me. And then he did help me. And somehow that help from my dad meant more to me than I have ever dared tell him. Because I know he wasn't doing it out of duty. He was doing it out of delight. You know, fathers and sons, we're not always real great at, you know, the I love you stuff. But it meant a lot to me because I knew he was doing it because he loved me. I'm his son. God does nothing for you or me out of duty. He has no obligation toward us. And yet he does so much through Jesus. It's just a totally different lane to drive in in your life and of belief and receiving the gift. Not trying to earn it and not expecting him to give it because he owes you. Reminds me of guys that came to Jesus and they were talking to him and he told a story, or he didn't tell a story, but he said, when I come back, Jesus said he's coming back. When I come back and everybody's confronted with me face to face, there's some who I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. There's some who I'm going to say, well done. Many of the people who I say, depart from me, I never knew you, are going to be shocked And they're going to say, what? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do all this stuff? Didn't I teach Sunday school? Didn't I lead people to Christ? Didn't I go on mission trips? And he's going to say, depart from me. You did a bunch of stuff, but I never knew you. You've been traveling your whole life in the worker lane, thinking you could earn something. And the whole while, never just turned to me to receive my open-handed gift. And I just, I really seriously worry about many of you, that when Christ returns, you're going to be shocked. And that even now in daily life, you're missing out 
on the joy of being a believer because we're caught in the lane of being a worker. And it's all through the Bible that God doesn't want our duty. He wants our delight in him. I've got, I was actually going to quote to you, I could quote to you like a hundred different places in the Bible from this little book. Instead, I'll just recommend, maybe you go get this little book. It's called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. It's by John Piper. Small book, quick read, really powerful, really good. I'm not going to bore you by reading a bunch out of there. But he shows how all through Scripture, God just wants our heart. He wants our delight. This is part of the reason why I'm easy on the guilt tripping. Like if, you know, if you're not coming to Sunday school, which most of you guys aren't, I've never been up here and been like, you, 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 and you, why aren't you in Sunday school? Christians go to Sunday school. You need to come to Sunday school. Or house to house. You guys know how much I love house to house. I think house to house is one of the healthiest, best things going on in our church right now. But I'm not trying to guilt you into going. I don't try to guilt the folk. You know, we have 130 people basically associated with the church, yet our usual attendance is like 80. I'm not out there trying to guilt those other people to come. Because, you know, the truth is, I don't want you coming here singing songs about how great thou art out of duty and obligation. God doesn't want that. God hates that. Passionately hates that. You read some of these prophets in the Old Testament where that was going on. He can't stand that. Because he doesn't want our work. He wants our belief. And belief leads to passion, it leads to worship, it leads to desiring to come, it leads to realizing this wonderful, awesome, amazing being behind these pages. So we don't approach it as a job description, but as a revelation of God himself. I see yawns, I gotta keep moving. I do see the yawns. I know you can't help it, it's involuntary. The question to ask here, though, is how much of your Christianity is obligation and duty? If you just stop doing all the things that you really don't want to do, but you do because that's what you're supposed to do, if you stripped all that away, what would be left? If it's nothing, then you really need to consider where you're at. Okay, the last distinction. And this is going to be short and blunt like a punch to the face. (laughs) What's at stake here is really, really serious. Workers die. Workers die. Believers live. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. And that's all I'm going to do to expound on that. Uh, A couple of chapters over, we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Uh, No, I'm going to start in... No, 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 I'm going to read a different verse first. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 first says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've done a lot of work proving that we've all sinned and we're all sinners in the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to rehash all of that. Just, we're, we're all sinners That verse plus Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift 
of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, workers earn wages. The wages we're going to find that we've earned is death. That's harsh, that's unappealing. I'm not going to probably build a mega church on that, but it's true and it's God's word. Workers earn death. That's our wages. Believers get the free gift of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I told you guys at the end of last week, I put out a little teaser for this week. And I said, we always say that you're saved by belief in Jesus alone. But what about people who lived in Old Testament times before Jesus was ever born? How are they saved? Well, really? The answer to that is in the passage for next week, more than this week. (laughs) But I'm going to go ahead and throw out there probably the three points I'm going to preach next week. Um, But it fits this week too. Because there's three lessons we can learn about the lane of belief from Abraham and Old Testament saints. I'm just going to do them real quick because I know it's hard to listen to somebody go on and on for a long time. And this is important and I don't want to lose you. But first, saving belief and daily belief are really the same thing. It's so hard for us to understand how did these Old Testament people, how were they saved when they believed but they didn't believe in Jesus by name? And we think that the beliefs are so different. Well, it's really not. If, if you believe in Jesus and you believe that God will fulfill his promise to provide for your family or give you rest if you're weary and heavy laden. It's really the same pool of faith, belief that those two are drawn from. Which leads to the second point that I'm going to expound on a lot more next week. Saving belief doesn't require that you understand everything fully. Abraham, it says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. If you look at what he believed... Most of it doesn't have to do with Jesus specifically. And then one part of what he believed had something to do with Jesus vaguely. He didn't understand everything. He understood that God made some promises. God was who he said he was. And that somehow, through his lineage, God was going to bless all the nations. He didn't know Jesus' name. He didn't understand justification and righteousness and propitiation and atonement and all the big words. But he understood enough. In other words, it's okay if you still have to use your index to find the books of the Bible. You can still understand enough about what God has said to be saved if you believe. And then the third thing, saving belief precedes obedience. Um, I'm not going to get into all that. I don't want to go too far. What I want to do is invite you to think about which lane you're in, the worker lane or the believer lane. And if you're in the worker lane and you know it, switch lanes. Just lay down your work. Stop trying so hard. You are under no obligation to do stuff. Is that freeing? You don't don't have to come every Sunday. Nobody's going to crack down on you. Put down your work, lift your eyes from what your hands are doing, and put them on God 
in Jesus, who he is, what he said, and start investing your trust and belief in it. All that other stuff will follow. You'll want to be here. You'll want God's word. You'll want to go to house to house and discuss it further. You'll want to be growing. You'll want to be discipling your kids. You'll want to be telling your coworkers about Jesus. All the stuff, the works follow. First, get in the believer lane. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your, your word is true and powerful and clear. And I pray that it would be so for all of us. I just, I, I, all the words that I have thrown out at these people, I just pray that you would wipe away the confusing ones and solidify the certain ones and that we would see clearly which lane are we in. And that those of us who are workers, that you would enable us to see that and to lay it down and to look to you and to believe and to get out of that lane before we die. And I pray that you would make this so clear that the believers in this room would be clear-headed about it enough to go and tell people and to make more believers like you've called us to do. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, if I could accept it as the pastor of this church on everyone's behalf, we receive it. Thank you. But I know that each of us has to make that decision on our own. So um, I pray that we would, in Jesus' name.